0: everyone and welcome to the first extended show notes episode of sex and the sacred just as a reminder this episode is unedited and will be a little more academically oriented than the normal episodes are my goal in recording these notes as opposed to writing them is to make the more scholarly aspects of this podcast as accessible as the introductory episodes are The Sex and the Sacred website will still provide resources grouped by topic, as well as a full Chicago-style bibliography of all the sources I used in the production of the episode and these show notes. So let's jump in. In the course of producing the last Sex and the Sacred episode, it became increasingly clear to me that Morgan, or Morgaine Morgu, or Morgan Le Fay, whichever name you choose for her, received a unique treatment from the Arthurian authors. While most of the residents of Camelot develop more nuanced backstories, they go on quests, fall in love, and do great deeds that earn them their rightful places at the round table. Morgan experiences a devolution in her character. She transforms from Geoffrey of Monmouth's mystical healer queen to Sir Thomas Mallory's Wicked Witch of the Welsh. Creating the timeline of Morgan's fall from grace raised a number of questions for me. Most important among them was, why Morgan? In our last episode, I claim that this deterioration occurs because Morgan embodies a history of matriarchal paganism. And while that may certainly be the short answer to my question, I want to explore this a little more deeply. To better understand this devolution, I need to locate her, Morgan within the spiritual world of medieval England. Pinpointing Morgan in her larger context requires a few different inquiries, First, we have to orient her within the world that she first appeared in. Where does the character come from? What figures, histories, and legends did Geoffrey of Monmouth use in his creation of the very first Morgan? Secondly, we must begin to understand the changes in Europe that would have led to devolved perspectives of that character. I expect that the combination of these two investigations will go a long way in contextualizing Morgan's demise. If we can figure out how Morgan became entangled in these histories, then perhaps we can figure out why she became the target of late medieval Christian authors. With any luck, and a little research, answering these guiding questions will allow us to locate Morgan within her wider context. And if we can do that, then we may truly understand why the character degenerates so uniquely through the course of Arthurian literature. The first of our tasks relies on pinpointing Morgan's Morgan's origins, Morgan's origins, Morgan's origins. Say that three times fast. In Geoffrey of Monmouth's Vita Merlini, she makes her first, but minimal, appearance. Given that the reference is so brief, I will include the full paragraph here. Monmouth describes the Island of Apples, later called Avalon, saying this. There, nine sisters rule by a pleasing set of laws, those who come to them from our country. She who is first among them is more skilled in the healing art and excels her sisters in the beauty of her person. Morgan is her name, and she has learned what useful properties all the herbs contain, so that she can cure sick bodies. She also knows an art by which to change her shape, and to cleave the air on new wings like Daedalus. When she wish excuse me, when she wishes she is at Brest, Chartres, or Pavia, and when she will she slips down from the air onto your shores. And men say that she has taught mathematics to her sisters. Thither, after the Battle of Camlan, we took the wounded Arthur, guided by Barinthis, to whom the waters and the stars of heaven were well known. With him steering the ship, we arrived there with the prince, and Morgan received us with fitting honor. And in her chamber, she placed the king on a golden bed, and with her own hand, she uncovered his honorable wound and gazed at it for a long time. At length, she said that health could be restored to him if he stayed with her for a long time and made use of her healing art. Rejoicing, therefore, we entrusted the king to her and returning, spread our sails to the favoring winds. So, (laughs) from this description, we can extract a small list of things we know about Morgan. First, we know that she is the primary ruler of the Isle of Avalon. We know that she is a great healer and that she's exceedingly beautiful. We know that she is a master herbalist and uses this knowledge in her work as a healer. We learn that she can shapeshift, grow wings, and fly great distances. And we can also include that she's rumored to have both learned and taught mathematics. And finally, that she is entrusted with the mortally wounded King Arthur. These nine items, paired with her name, compose the entirety of what Monmouth offers us on Morgan's character. Frankly, it's not much, especially for a character that would become so much an antagonist in Arthurian literature and in our cultural memory. However, it may be just enough for our purposes. Using this list of things we know, we may be able to find the inspiration for Morgan in early Celtic mythology. As I mentioned in the most recent episode, it's very likely that Morgan was inspired by the Celtic goddess the Morrigan. The triple goddess is a master of battle and death and is associated with the inevitability of fate. She is the guardian of sovereignty and is alternatively a fierce protector and a scarier enemy. In Celtic mythology, the Morrigan, sometimes split into her three forms, Morrigan, Badb, and Maka, and sometimes referred to only as the Phantom Queen, was known to transform into a crow or sometimes a raven and served as an omen of death to Irish heroes. Her coupling with the god King Dagda marked the Celtic New Year, which we now associate with both Samhain and Halloween. It doesn't take a great deal of imagination to see the resemblance between the Celtic goddess and Sir Geoffrey's Morgan. Both figures are supernatural queens, rulers of mystical territories. They are both heavily associated with death. In the Vita, Morgan's only appearance occurs when knights carry the dying King Arthur to the mystical Avalon. The concepts of fate and prophecy are even made explicit when the soldiers leave Arthur with the great queen, comforted by her promise that she will heal the king and one day return him to England. In fact, this in the... one more time there. (laughs) In fact, in this original story, this is Morgan's primary role. To receive the dying hero, just like the Morrigan would. The most interesting similarity between these women, however, is not Morgan's association with death. It's her ability to shapeshift and fly. In The Vita, Morgan's only role is to receive King Arthur. Why, then, would Geoffrey of Monmouth note that she has this secondary ability? I would argue that this is not just an effort at building up a character, but that it is Sir Geoffrey explicitly telling us that Morgan is the Arthurian version of the Morrigan. It's a foolproof plan. Sir Geoffrey, in adapting the Morrigan to be a symbol of both death and healing, needed to make sure that his readers would not miss the connection. By including Morgan's ability to shapeshift, he ensures that we can't misunderstand who Morgan is supposed to represent. Sir Geoffrey's insistence that we understand Morgan to be the Morrigan brings us to an interesting dilemma. Can we study the literary character further without also examining the Celtic goddess? Well, if we assume that the readers of Vita Merlini would make this same connection, then we certainly must do the same. This, luckily, gives us a starting place for our next query. If we seek to understand the development of Morgan's magical abilities and its consequences for the character, then we must start by understanding what happened to the Morgan in the centuries between Arthurian publications. In the last episode, I argue that the rise of Christianity triggers Morgan's downfall. I claim that the enchantress embodies matriarchal paganism, which made her a target to the Christian writers who described her as Arthur's nemesis. In particular, I theorize that it is Morgan's magical abilities and her sexuality that make her a threat in Sir Thomas Malory's Mallory's Morte d'Arthur. My French accent is really miserable. To confirm these hypotheses, we must examine the history of British Christianization and the cultural shifts that accompanied it. Armed with our knowledge that the original Morgan is an embodiment of the Morrigan, we may use the path of the goddess to locate the history of the character. When Morgan first appeared in the Vita, England had already become nominally Christian. The kings of England had converted centuries earlier, and although very few people attended church services, most people would self-identify as a member of the Christian tradition. Why, then, is Morgan benevolent in 1150 and malevolent by by 1489? Excuse me. What occurred in the intervening centuries that would cause both the rise of defensive Christian identity and the downfall of indigenous pagan traditions? Put simply, the Crusades happened. By 1150, the First Crusade had already been underway for over 60 years. However, the war had not yet become an issue of national identity. It wouldn't be until 1189, after the publishing of Vita Merlini, that King Richard I, of Robin Hood fame, would personally go on crusade and make warring an English mission, not just a Christian one. Before this, heresy had been a far more conceptual threat than a tangible one. After all, most 12th century Britons practiced a religion that used Abrahamic, Roman, and Celtic traditions all at once. The appeal of the Crusades, then, had been about opportunity and not holy war. This is why Geoffrey of Monmouth could write a character based on the Morrigan without demonizing her or her magic. His readers would recognize Morgan as the goddess, but would not identify her as a threat to the Christian characters. However, the Crusades would last for another several centuries and religious fervor would only grow. We can see the beginnings of Morgan's decline in the 13th century Vulgate and post-Vulgate cycles. She loses her status of Avalonian queen and becomes Arthur's jealous half-sister. Additionally, she develops a potent sexuality in these stories that provides the context for her later abasement. These modifications to the original Morrigan-like character reflect Europe's changing opinion of England's pagan history. By the time that Sir Thomas Mallory published Le Morte* in 1485, the Crusades had solidified Christianity's exclusive religious authority in England. Although the nation did not participate as consistently as the rest of continental Europe, it was equally susceptible to the cultural changes that arose from the centuries of mostly unsuccessful warfare. In rallying support for the Crusades, the Catholic Church developed a passionate rhetoric against all non-believers. The Jews and Muslims of the world were villainized and expelled from local communities, and thousands of peasants swarmed across Europe to reclaim the Holy Land from the heretics. By the end of the final battles, however, most Crusaders had nothing to show for their violent pilgrimages. They returned home empty-handed, only to find heretics and non-believers in their own communities. The pagan traditions that long preceded Christianity in England now appeared to threaten the very home crusaders had left to, quote, defend. Earth-based rituals no longer were harmless relics of older traditions. They were heresy, and all practitioners must be stopped. These origins of what would later become the Inquisitions go a long way to explain what happened to Morgan of Avalon and to the Morrigan who inspired her. As a pagan goddess, the Morrigan became a symbol of heresy by the late Middle Ages. The practice of earth-based magic was no longer part of an ancient history of religious practice, but became sorcery or maleficium. In fact, it's in this era of internalized xenophobia that we see a shift in the way Britons perceived magic in general. Herbalists, healers, and mystics of all kinds were facing accusations of witchcraft. Publications on witch hunting were growing in number, and a shape-shifting enchantress was a clear threat to a Christian king, fictional or not. By 1489, Sir Thomas Mallory would have been quite aware of how his readers would perceive his Morgan Le Fay as nothing less than a wicked witch. By studying the religious landscape of medieval England, we have been able to get a far better understanding of how and why Morgan, a mystical queen based on the goddess the Morrigan, could become Morgan Le Fay, sorceress extraordinaire. We found that the Morrigan lost credibility in England after centuries of religious crusades, which promoted persecution against any non-Christians. This villainization of the Morrigan and pagan traditions in general, led to the necessity of Morgan becoming an antagonist to the Christian ruler of Camelot. With that said, I don't believe I'm done studying medieval magic. I'm certainly out of time for today's show notes episode, but if you'll agree to it, let's explore the development of witchcraft accusations in Europe on the next Sex and the Sacred episode. Sound like a plan? If you'd like to learn more about Morgan, the Morrigan, Crusades history, or Arthurian literature, head to www.sexandthesacred.com where you can find the bibliography for this and every episode. Additionally, you can drop me a comment on the site or on the article and let me know what you think of the podcast. Your feedback helps me produce a better episode based on your interests. Thanks for joining me today. I'll see you next time on Sex and the Sacred, when we'll attempt to make sense of maleficium.